0: Good morning. I'm Evan Solomon. Today on Question Period Breaking News, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is making a surprise visit to Ukraine, visiting Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky and raising a flag at the Canadian Embassy in Kyiv as it reopens. Also on the mission, the Deputy Prime Minister Krista Freeland and the Foreign Minister Melanie Jolie. What is the significance of this wartime visit and what does it mean for Canadian support to Ukraine as the war with Russia escalates? We'll go live to Kiev to speak with the former Ukrainian ambassador to Canada, Andrei Shevchenko, in just a moment. Also on the program today, clash of conservatives. Did a brawling conservative leadership debate reveal big tears in the blue tent? As another candidate's debate takes place this week in Edmonton, and as the Alberta Conservative Party threatens to toss its leader, we'll speak with Alberta Premier Jason Kenney on fractures inside that movement. Then, bank bust. Did the Bank of Canada fail in its fight against inflation? And are political attacks on the bank's independence fair? The former governor of the Bank of Canada, David Dodge, joins us. He hits back at some hard attacks from Pierre Polievre. All that plus what to watch for in the Ontario election. This is question period. Let's go get some answers. And we begin today with the breaking news out of Ukraine this hour where Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is on the ground visiting the capital today as the war rages on in the east. He is meeting with Ukrainian President Zelensky today. There are real security concerns on the ground in these situations but here's what we know. He's been, um, he arrived today and he visited Irpin, which has been brutally shelled by the Russians in their failed attempt to take Kyiv. He later raised a flag at the Canadian Embassy in Kyiv, where it's been reopened. And he will be taking part in a virtual meeting with G7 leaders later today. This comes after the Prime Minister spoke with U.S. President Joe Biden on Friday, saying they are focused on uh, Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine. Um, We're going to bring in now Paul Workman, our CTV International Correspondent. Uh, He is on the ground in Kyiv, we've reached him by phone, this is breaking right now. Uh, Paul, I know, uh, uh, can you give us any details about the visit and what's happening today?
1: Well, as you said earlier, Evan, it was kept under embargo for obvious uh, security reasons and we know or we believe the Prime Minister arrived sometime this morning. He was supposed to be spending a good part of the day with uh, President Zelensky here. He was, we're told, taken to Irpin, as you mentioned, a, a city that's not far from Kyiv, that was quite badly damaged. And we believe he also went to the city of Butsha, where quite a number of people were executed. Uh, Russian soldiers are accused of war crimes in that particular case. He will be having a joint news conference with President Zelensky at some point. We're waiting now for our own security clearances before we go to that it was expected that the prime minister would come many oh, many european leaders other world leaders have come in to visit and show their solidarity with ukraine and uh, the prime minister has now uh, taken this opportunity to come in open the embassy officially open the embassy at the same time raising a flag today over that building here in kiev
0: uh, Paul, just before I let you go, um, do we have any idea? Obviously, there's be real security concerns. Paul Workman is in Kyiv. Um, he has a very important meeting with President Zelensky. Uh, do we know anything about that and, and how long it will be?
1: I don't really know or how long, we're, how much time we're going to be given with him. It's being, it's being billed as a, a joint news conference between the two leaders, uh Inside the secure area of Kiev, and there are you know there's quite a vast secure area of Kiev without giving any security details away um and we'll see what the two of them have to say. We're just being taken now, led towards the the palace, and that should begin probably in you know. Not too long, I should think. I don't have any other details that I can actually give you about what happens with the prime minister after that.
0: All right, CTV's Paul Workman uh, is covering that visit live as we speak. Paul, thank you very much. We should also say today the U.S. First Lady, Jill Biden. Jill Biden is in uh, Ukraine, as is the singer from YouTube Bono who performed a small concert in a subway. These are all acts of solidarity as Ukraine continues to fight Russia and the war is escalating in the east, especially around the southeast city of Mariupol. Uh, let me bring in the former Ukrainian ambassador to Canada, Andriy Shevchenko. He's also in Kyiv. Uh, ambassador, always a pleasure to have you here on the program. Um, how important is this surprise wartime visit from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau?
2: Massively. Uh, it's not just another sign of solidarity, but what is really important that it comes from uh, Canada and if you walk down the streets of Kyiv, and if you say you're from Canada, you will see people smiling at you. That's what we feel about Canada. And I think for quite a long time, we wanted Canada to see you back to Kyiv. Uh,
0: Ambassador Shevchenko, uh, there's going to be a meeting, of course, with President Zelensky, as you know, uh, that is always a significant thing. They know each other well. Um, Ukraine has long, needs more weapons. What will uh, the president be asking for, for, from Canada in terms of support?
2: I think there will be specific requests to Canada, but also I'm quite sure that Ukraine will ask Canada to use its international authority uh, to, to gather support uh, for Ukraine. We do see Canada as a country which can be a leader of this international coalition to to help us. Um, For for, for the last several years, there was a poll among the international experts uh, on Ukraine. And when they were asked here in Ukraine, when they were asked, what are the best allies, the best friends of Ukraine? And the first two countries would always be Canada and Lithuania. That's what we feel about Canada here.
0: Okay. Uh, Of course, there have been questions about you needing more artillery support, needing more military support. Um, The date is significant of this visit. It's May 8th. Tomorrow, May 9th. And and May 9th, as you know, the Russians call that Victory Day, celebrating the victory over Nazi Germany in 1945. It is symbolic. Many believe Vladimir Putin will declare some kind of symbolic victory um, or even escalate attacks. Is Ukraine preparing for uh, something tomorrow to coincide with the timing and is the timing of this visit coinciding with that as well to kind of change the channel on that
2: absolutely and i think uh those who are here in kiev they greatly appreciate the timing of this visit uh yes it's true that the russians are obsessed with this uh may 9th mythology and uh, There are a lot of uh, news and conversations about what can happen in the next 24 hours. Uh, Even as we talk, there is an airstrike siren on here in downtown Kiev. So that's why the timing is is so important. And I also feel that uh, I accompanied uh, Prime Minister Trudeau during his visit to Ukraine in 2016. He has a very decent understanding of what is going on here. Uh But now he had a chance to see it with his own eyes. I'm sure he now knows how this feels after what he saw in Irpin and in Bucha. And I think it's very important that he has this understanding. And one last thing. Obviously, when we see Prime Minister Trudeau and Deputy Prime Minister Freeland here, we know they speak on behalf of the whole of Canada. We know that there is a very powerful support across the party lines, and we greatly appreciate this.
0: Um, I just want to make sure I'm, I'm understanding. You're saying that you and I are speaking live in Kyiv. The prime minister's there, uh, the deputy prime minister's there, the foreign affairs minister. There's actually um, air raid sirens going on. Is there, is there an attack going on on Kiev right now?
2: Well, it, it, it's a warning, and it's, I believe, the fifth or the sixth during this day. That means that everyone should be in shelters or in safe places. And that pretty much gives you the idea what we feel. Is, so so is local. there
0: a security concern that, that no, knowing that the prime minister of Canada is there, that the Russians could shell Kiev?
2: I think there should be no mistake. Uh, Russia sends a signal. They know Trudeau is here. And I think that's precise, precisely what they want you and us to understand. It's a signal that they don't care and they challenge you. And uh, that's why we greatly uh, appreciate the presence of people like like your prime minister your politicians, like Bono, who is in Kyiv today as well, we feel this solidarity with us.
0: Okay. Um, so, there are air raid sirens going on. Um, right now. Right now, uh, as the prime minister is in, is in Kyiv. Okay. Uh, Ambassador Shevchenko, I know you are in Kyiv. I hope you and your family are safe uh, as this uh, surprise wartime visit from the prime minister comes. Meeting with President Zelensky. They will have a G7 summit meeting. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it very much. My pleasure. Okay, so that's the breaking news this morning. We'll be following it throughout the day as the Prime Minister is in Ukraine and the remarkable moment, as Andrei Shevchenko just confirmed, air raid sirens going off in Kiev as the Prime Minister is there. We'll take a break. When we come back, cracks in the Conservative movement does the nasty Conservative federal leadership race and the internal Conservative wars in Alberta signal dangerous new divisions in the Conservative movement. Coming up next, Alberta Premier Jason Kenney joins us. We've got lots to come. Stay right here with Question Period. Also, David Dodge will join us on the program. We'll be right back in a moment. Politics in a democracy is supposed to be a robust debate of ideas, but sometimes those debates can tear a party apart. No one knows this better than Conservatives, they tore their federal party apart in the late 80s and the 90s. First, the Reform Party split from the Mulroney Progressive Conservatives in 1987. Then there was the United Alternative, then the Canadian Alliance Party, until finally Stephen Harper and Peter McKay made that deal to unite the right under the new Conservative Party banner. But after three election losses, new cracks are showing in that party, or at least a new nastiness, as the first Conservative leadership debate revealed.
1: Now, Mr.
3: Charest learned about the trucker convoy on CBC, like other Liberals, and he misrepresented them. Uh, He believes that I should be censored. He believes I should be canceled from this leadership race and disqualified, in his words, because I don't share his Liberal viewpoint.
2: Mr. Poliev, during that period, supported an illegal blockade. You cannot make laws and break laws and then say I will make laws for other people.
0: This Wednesday, there's another debate coming, this time in Edmonton for Conservative leadership hopefuls, and that's in the very province where another new Conservative party is facing another crisis. The man who created the United Conservative Party in Alberta back in 2017, when he united the Conservatives with the Wild Rose Party, is facing a contentious leadership review on May 18th, and it's also threatening to tear his party apart. Premier Kenny says he has to protect his party from the, quote, lunatics who are trying to take over the asylum. So what does all this tell us about the conservative movement in general? Let's find out. Joining me now, the Premier of Alberta, Jason Kenney. Good to see you in town. Good to be here. Okay, so you watched the... Uh, First unofficial conservative leadership debate, and now they're coming to your province, Edmonton, on Wednesday for that. What struck me was how nasty it was. Maybe the nastiest leadership debate, you've been in a bunch of these. Um, was that a robust policy debate, or does that signal a deeper issue in the conservative movement in general? That there, this, is it a nastiness or is it a kind of existential crisis there?
3: Well, I'm not sure. It certainly was feisty. And my advice to all of the candidates would be to remember you've got to unite, whoever wins, has got to unite the party at the end of it. And uh, try and be respectful of your. You know, it's okay, I think, to draw policy contrasts and right. some contrasts on record. But I think that my advice would all do that knowing that you've got to reunite the party at right. the end of this. And uh, uh, that's that's critical.
0: Like calling someone a liar, calling someone corrupt, calling someone, oh, you're. And, and part of it was you don't even belong in the party. You're a liberal. You're not. I just wonder, there. it seems to be litmus test issues, like you're either a conservative or not. Is that, I mean, you were a federal politician for a long time. What does it tell you about the state of that party that it's, it's this level of nasty?
3: Well, it's a big tent movement, and there's going to be some disagreement. That's the nature of an election, of a, of a leadership election. There's going to be some some conflict for sure. Uh, but uh, again, you, you've got to keep that big tent, and that right. means people with different perspectives and different backgrounds uh, so i I would you know if I would just encourage all the candidates to be mindful of that
0: one issue that came up and, and again, I know you have to be careful on the lines uh, Les and Lewis, who of course is the standard bearer for social conservatives, seemed emboldened by what was going on in the in the United States with the roe v Wade situation. that has surprisingly has suddenly abortion is back on the agenda in elected politics here um, has the role of social conservatives in the conservative movement you talked about the big Ten. Is it changing right now?
3: I, I don't think significantly. As, as Jean Charest said in the debate, social conservatives are part of the broader coalition, people who believe in the importance of family, parental authority, and education, things like that. And, um, and so that's not new. And every successful conservative leader has tried to ensure that everybody has a chance. They always get their, everybody gets their say, but they don't always get their way. That's how you keep a coalition together
0: i just got to ask you on on the provincial level because people are asking, should the federal government put legislation on it? They've they've used the Canada Health Act and they've used the Charter, as you know, on that. Um, Is access to abortion um, threatened in your mind and is this an important political debate to have?
3: The debate is over a potential decision in a court in a foreign country. I really don't see how that connects to Canadian policy. And in any event, uh, this is a question that is under federal jurisdiction. So... Um, you know, I, I think that uh, hund- we can all funded. have opinions about what's going on in the U- in U.S. law and politics, but it's a debate over. I, I mean, I'm not asked these questions when uh, a European or an Asian country changes their policy. I but think but we-
0: I, and that's a fair point. But but it's here anyway. It's 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 it's. It's come here. One of the issues in your province is access to abortion, that uh, per capita, it's very low access in your province. Are you committed to increasing access to abortion or having some standardized access?
3: We have not changed policy since the NDP, and there's no intention to change policy.
0: Let's go to your situation, because you're probably a little more focused on your political future than on theirs Theirs right now, because you're facing a leadership review on May 18th. At one point, uh, you were... uh, Recorded by the CBC as saying you 're here to make sure that the lunatics don 't take over the asylum. who are the lunatics? Well, I was
3: referring very specifically to um, so the, some of the in the last election, uh, I screened out a, a bunch of people who were trying to run for my party who had records of extremism of racism of hatred, and I made it very clear when I ran to be leader and created helped to create the United Conservative Party in Alberta that this was going to be a mainstream party that is not open to uh, people from the fringe who are motivated by hatred. And some of those folks are trying to get revenge, quite frankly, organizing against me in this leadership review.
0: But we're talking about keeping a conservative movement together. I just want to twin these tensions, sure. because you've got the tension there. Uh, in the first leadership debate, one thing that w- there was a gap. No one mentioned 39,000-plus Canadians who died. Nobody mentioned healthcare workers. Um, it was like mandates were a litmus test. If you're not, if you're for mandates, and you've experienced this, you, you get a backlash. Yet, you're the premier. You had mandates. You're the Premier, you wanted law and order against trucker protests at the... Doug Ford did. Francois Legault did. They're winning. I didn't... Did you see that view reflected on the federal stage? Well, or it seems to be... I'm just trying to figure out what the conservative view is on all that.
3: Well, you have about seven centre-right conservative governments in this... Uh, provincial governments in Canada. And for us, COVID was not an abstraction. We are responsible for delivering health care to people... And none of us could tolerate a situation where the hospitals were overflowing. I was a couple of weeks away potentially from having to order pulling life support from people, uh, tele you know transporting patients to Toronto, and using backup morgue trucks. Like there's no world in which I could find that morally acceptable. So and you
0: were criticized. You know, you faced fierce and and for many people legitimate criticism for being too slow, for not doing yeah. enough, for not doing for you know the 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 best summer ever many people regard it as a major and sometimes fatal mistake.
3: And I got passionate criticism from both sides. My point is, at the provincial government level, COVID was not an abstraction. It was a very real threat to the healthcare system for which provincial governments are responsible. I think, to some extent, at the federal level, it's easier to turn it into an abstraction because you're not responsible for running out of healthcare capacity.
0: Okay. Um, your party, you formed it in 2017 when y- The former leader of the Wild Rose, Brian Jean, is back. He wants to oust you, as you know. Um, Does your party hold together? Because, you know, conservative parties have... You've been there since 87 when the Reform Party formed. It's been a series of, you know, fractures and unities and fractures and unities. Where are you now on that?
3: Our members are having to vote on whether to have a leadership election. I'm confident that I'll be endorsed. Uh, Regardless, I'll respect the decision that they make. And we'll unite after that. What Look, do you need? What
0: do you need to to stay? By the way, is it? Would you stay at fifty plus one, or is that? Or this is like a Joe Clark? What? Do you need seventy? Do you need eighty? Well, as I've 40?
3: said, in a democracy, a majority is fifty percent plus one. Period. But Evan, if I were to step down and run in a leadership election, this, what is the threshold? Fifty percent plus one. I'm not going to get fixated on a number. I believe uh, I'll get a, a good endorsement from the members because they want to stay united, move forward into the future. And one thing Alberta Conservatives have learned is that if we're united, we can win. If we're divided, we always lose.
0: All right, uh, Jason, I've got to leave it there. I appreciate it. Cheers. All right, coming up, under fire. Did the Bank of Canada fail in its mission to keep inflation at 2%? And why are politicians attacking its credibility should the bank hit back? The former governor of the Bank of Canada, David Dodge, joins us next. Stay right here with Question Period. Well, no one had attacking the Bank of Canada on the political bingo card, but Conservative candidate Pierre Polyever has made that a key part of his campaign, even stopping in front of the bank itself to promise to get its inner workings audited by the Auditor General. The bank, by the way, already gets audited. But Mr. Polyever has also called it financially illiterate. Now, if this is all raw politics, there is also some legitimate reasons to criticize the bank. Its mandate is to keep inflation, after all, at 2%, but inflation is at 6.7%. That is a 31-year high, and inflation is still growing. The central bank recently raised its key interest rate by half a percentage point to 1%, and more increases are expected throughout the year. So, does the Bank of Canada now have a credibility issue? And should the bank be moving more quickly to break rising inflation? Let's find out. Joining me now is the former Bank of Canada governor and now the Bennett Jones senior advisor, David Dodge. Sir, it's a pleasure. Great pleasure to be here, Evan. Boy, the bank's under a lot of fire politically, so let's do a little myth-busting, okay? Um, The key target, their metric of success is to hold inflation at 2%. That's their goal. Inflation is at 6.7%. Some might say, well, they've blown it. They, they aimed for two, it's 6.7. Did they blow it? Did they get it wrong and now they're trying to, trying to fix it?
4: They got it incredibly right in the spring of 2020 when we were all desperately scared about how the impact of the pandemic was going to play out. And they did exactly the right thing uh, in that spring. They lowered rates to as low as they could go, and, uh, and they con- eased, uh, eased the conditions, financial conditions, uh, by expanding their balance sheet. So they did exactly textbook right thing. Fast forward to the summer of 21, right, when we were still very uncertain about how this pandemic was going to play out. But there was increasing evidence that we were going to have a longer period of rising prices, uh, and they were still at, at a policy rate which was enormously accommodative. And so I think it's quite fair to say that the banks analysts and economists virtually universally kind of missed the signals that this inflation
0: was going to mount. The senior deputy governor of the bank, Carolyn Rogers, as you know, said, we are acutely aware that with some of the extraordinary actions we have taken during the pandemic, which you've discussed, sir, and with the inflation well above our target at 6.7, not 2, some people are questioning that trust. There are now calls to have a, 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 the, the Auditor General audit the bank as it, to find out what went wrong. Has the Bank of Canada lost the trust of Canadians, or is it in danger of doing so? Uh,
4: The danger is always there. The danger is always there, and communications from the bank is very, very important in that regard. I think the bank has been very open in their communications. They have, in fact, said as much recently that, look, we did misjudge the situation uh, last summer, we were not alone, I would say, in, in that. But we did misjudge the situation last summer. And now we're going to have to move to reduce the amount of accommodation, uh, monetary accommodation, we are providing. So th- they are doing a saying and doing exactly the right thing. But they have to be nervous, as does the ordinary citizen, has to be nervous about a future... We do not know. We do not know how the geopolitical situation in the world is going to play out. We do not know how the pandemic uh, situation is going to play out. We can see right now in China it playing out
0: in a very different way than we had expected. Okay, let me do two things real quick. We'll start with the politics and then we'll get to the practical, which the citizens worried about inflation, the politics. Pierre Polyever says the bank is financially illiterate. It's been so bad. Well, that's bullshit. to be blunt. That's blunt. Really? Yeah,
4: absolutely. The bank understands. You're insulted by that. Yes, I'm very insulted by that. And why? 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 Because they they understand what's going on. They made a judgment call, which I think was... 100% 100% right, Right, and, and would have been uh, claimed by people like Polyev to be absolutely crazy in the spring of 21, uh, in the spring of 20, but it right. was that judgment call in the spring right. of 20 that saved us from a real depression coming out of the right. pandemic. Interesting.
0: What, again, Mr. Polyevra says that we've got to take back our money. He tells Ken, we've got to take back our money supply, and we've got to uh, also... He's talking about crypto being able to opt out of inflation. What what do you make about take back our money supply and opting out of inflation? Well,
4: I have no idea what he's talking about, and neither does he uh, in that regard. On the crypto issue, he's just wrong. He's just wrong um, because... The issue of rising prices in term, rising prices that, that you have to cope right. with out of, your, out of your income is fundamentally, at the moment, a structural one. Right. That we have limitations on supply, right. in part because of a war, in part because of COVID, in part because of ongoing features of the economy of we're all getting older. and the labor force is not growing as fast.
0: Okay, let's get practical. People are saying, gosh, interest rates. uh, They look at what's happening in the U.S., and here they're going up. Uh, Housing prices are starting to fall, or housing sales are starting to fall, as you know. Um, How high will interest rates go to cool this inflation bubble?
4: Uh, We don't know the answer to that. Uh, I can give you only my own sense of Of what I would argue. That probably... we're we're going to get the overnight rate up to something in the order of three or maybe just a tick above three or a tick below three. That being, we think, we don't know, but we think essentially the rate at which monetary policy is neither adding to inflationary pressures nor pulling it down. So I think that we we need to get there very quickly. Where we go beyond, let's say that, two-and-a-half or three or three-and-a-quarter percent. Where we go beyond that is going to depend on the very uncertain outcomes I talked about earlier, what's going to happen in terms of pandemic, what's going to happen in terms of of the war in, in, uh, in, in Ukraine and so on. And
0: those uncertainties, we don't know. We just don't know. Finally, inflation. Uh, the bank and I remember talking to, just recently to Tiff Macklin, the current governor of the bank, and he said, "Well, it's transitory." And I said to him, "I think that's a terrible word because I think your understanding of transitory and the average person is different." Um, was that a the wrong word to use? But how long does this inflation uh, bubble last for? If it if it is going away?
4: Yeah, so I think it was an unfortunate word. Uh, how long is it, how long is the uh, supply restraint? How long are the supply restraints going to last? That, that unfortunately, is uncertain. Look, I can assure you that this thing is going to, that the current high level of prices is going to ease off uh, next uh, uh, next fall. I, I don't think one, one can say that because we don't know about all of these other things that are going to go on in the world that... That neither monetary policy nor fiscal policy have an ability to
0: control. It's a worrying time. It's a complicated time, sir. It is. It's complicated. It is. Well, that's why we get you here. Uh, I appreciate you coming, uh, uh, David Dodge. It's it's a real pleasure to have you. Thank you. Good to be here, Evan. Still to come: Ontario goes to the polls. Is the election really about affordability or affords ability? to lead. Pollster Nick Nanos joins us next on the Scrum. I couldn't resist that. We'll break it all down. Stay right here with Question Period. (laughs) The election is on after giving Doug Ford a four-year majority government back in 2018. Ontarians are spending the next four weeks deciding whether to re-elect him as Premier on June 2nd or they might give the job to the NDP leader Andrea Horvath She's in her fourth campaign. And what about the Liberals, who were reduced to a paltry seven seats in the last election? Can Stephen Del Duca resurrect the red machine? Well, the Ontario election campaign, which is on right now, has a lot of pressing issues on voters' minds. According to the latest NANOS research poll, health care is the biggest concern, with 27% of respondents deeming that the top issue. That was followed by cost of living, housing, the economy, jobs... Then the environment, education and debt and deficit much farther down. So what's the biggest issue on the campaign trail now and what should you be watching for as it unfolds? The Scrum is here to answer that and this Scrum loves a good campaign. Stephanie Levitz, a Parliament Hill reporter with the Toronto Star. Marika Walsh, the political reporter with the Globe and Mail. And our special guest this round is Nanos Research founder, Nick Nanos. Okay, good morning, uh, Steph. Happy Mother's Day to you as well. Um, Nick. I know you're... What are the latest numbers? Uh, is this still Doug Ford's to lose?
5: Well, right now, we have uh, the CTV cp 24 tracking has the Conservatives, the Progressive Conservatives in Ontario with about a six-point advantage. You know, it's, they're lower than where they were in the last provincial election, but this election is still up for grabs. One of the big question marks will be Del Duca. You know, the Liberals are at 30% in the ballot box, but he's only at 17% on the preferred premier front. So he's a big question mark. So expect full-on attacks from both Ford and Horvath on Del Duca as they try to define him. But still up in the air right now, Evan.
0: Yeah, and Steph, that's interesting, right? Because his brand is pulling ahead of him, so he, has, he can make up ground or lose ground. What are you watching for as this unfolds?
6: So, you know, it's a thing about Conservative politics in this country that Conservative governments, progressive or otherwise, only ever win when the New Democrats are in second place. So if the Liberals continue to climb in any measure of support, that does pose a threat to Ontario Premier Doug Ford. But he's not the same Doug Ford that was elected in 2018. He's not the same Doug Ford that was governing Ontario for the first two years of his mandate. And it seems as though, you know, almost a real or a different version of Doug Ford is now be in front of Ontario voters, promising to spend billions of dollars, which is not normal normally a conservative thing to do and he's attacking all the issues that are really on people's minds right now like health care i mean we're hearing hospital announcements almost every single day right now how the liberals cut through that when doug ford's personal popularity is doing really well and sort of try and challenge him and hold him responsible for things that he can still flip back and say well the win liberals it's interesting to see how they'll build a campaign narrative around that
0: marika there is seems to be a pre- COVID Doug Ford and a post-COVID Doug Ford. Pre-COVID Doug Ford ran against Justin Trudeau. Post-COVID, they got in their arms around each other in Brampton and Windsor investing in auto plants. Uh, what are you looking for?
7: Well, I think there's two races going on right now, Evan. I think there is the race to, uh, you know, win government in Ontario. But I also think that between Andrea Horvath and Stephen Del Duca, there's a race of who is the alternative to Doug Ford. And I think that will be fought out. And as Steph said, if that becomes... Um, a clear one party or the other, then I think Ford has a bigger challenge on his hands than if it's still split on both sides between those parties. So I think that's something to look forward to. And the other thing is if anybody's actually paying attention to this race, if it's actually galvanizing the attention of uh, of voters, because so far it's not a change election so far, and so it's not actually seeming to have that traction.
0: I, I think it's interesting how they pay attention, as Marika says, Nick, what issue's cutting through? Is it, is it a referendum on health care? Is it a referendum on the economy? Is it one of these kind of promises, you know, like a buck a ride that Stephen Del Duca is talking about or handguns or Andrew Horvath saying, no, it's about prescription drug coverage. What is it?
5: Two big buckets. You know, it's health care and then economic issues like inflation, the cost of housing and stuff like that. But, you know, the the reality is, is that when we're looking at the issues right now what is clear at least from the polling is that if the progressive conservatives and the ford campaign think that they can win doing a victory lap on the pandemic and how that panned out it's not going to work what's clear from the polling is that ontarians want to hear about the future about the future of health care, about how housing will be managed and uh and i think that's basically what what they want to see from all of the provincial party leaders and the campaigns right now not a recap of what happened in the past. So it's not what have you done for me lately? It's what will you do right. in the next four years?
0: Although, Steph, that may cut well, right? Because maybe a premier like Doug Ford is not hurt by his performance in, in COVID. People are saying, okay, I don't even want to go there anymore. Let's look forward.
6: That's one of the most, you know, interesting things to think about. Back in, you know, the the heyday of the pandemic, Evan, we would talk on these shows about the political responsibility for the pandemic. Where was it going to land? Who was going to take the blame? Were voters going to ultimately hold anybody accountable for the series of mistakes and choices and decisions made by all levels of government? And where we're at is the answer seems to be either, in the case of the federal liberals winning re-election, albeit with a minority, in the fall, it was like, nope, you know, okay, you did all right. We're not so concerned. We're not so worried about the mistakes. And the same appears to perhaps hold true for Doug Ford. Despite the ire of parents, despite the ire of nurses, despite the ire of underpaid and understaffed and woefully under-resourced long-term care facilities that were a tragedy in this province during the pandemic, voters are seemingly able to say, well, yeah, but you made me feel good and you made me feel safe and that's enough. Let's move on. We're not
0: talking a lot about Andrea Horvath. It's her fourth campaign and look, the NDP are on a bit of a run. They've got government, for example, in British Columbia, they're they really say they've got a, a real strong shot in places like Manitoba. Mm-hmm. Um, what's your sense of, of, of the NDP pitch here?
7: Well, it's still it's they're all fighting for the same voter, right? right. They're all fighting over affordability, they're fighting over the progressive voters because the Conservatives believe they have the right of centre on lock. I think the issue and the question that I'm looking for for Andrea Horvath is, can her campaign do the pivot and do the strategic changes that need to be done in a race in order to actually be a contender because they weren't able to finish that race and to pivot to be the next government in waiting in the last campaign? And so the, the question is, have they learned from that?
0: Nick, I just got 30 seconds. It's interesting uh, when Marika said they're all fighting for the same voter. Progressive Conservatives in Ontario are a certain, like Doug Ford's changed. How does that, what do Conservatives in their own leadership race take from what's going on in Ontario?
5: Well, they should take, you know, one of the things that Doug Ford, I think, has been recognized for is not being as ideological and dogmatic and being pragmatic, and I think... That's what Ontario voters want from any of, the, any of the leaders. And I would hazard to say that across Canada, what they want are pragmatic leaders, not ideological or dogmatic ones that are moving either to the extreme right or the extreme left. Explains why Doug Ford is doing what he's doing today.
0: I think maybe he'll call that dogmatic, not dogmatic. Okay, Nick Nanos, thanks for joining us. Uh... I know, bad, bad. times. Bad. I know. Wow. So, think it happens, but there's more to come. Just a just a second. Stefan and Marika will be back. You cannot make
2: laws and break laws and then say I will make laws for other people.
0: Conservative cage match? After a vicious first debate, will deeper divisions in the the Conservative Party be exposed in the debate that's coming up this week? Which candidate has the most to gain or lose? We'll find out when the former Conservative Cabinet Minister, Lisa Raitt, joins us next on The Scrum. Stay right here with Question Period. A political brawl the likes of which few Canadian leadership races have ever seen. The first unofficial Conservative leadership debate featured an open clash between Jean Charest and Pierre Polievre, But they weren't the only ones going at it. Social Conservative Leslin Lewis also attacked frontrunner Pierre Polievre over his position on abortion.
6: Mr. Pierre Polyev has ran from the media the last few days because he doesn't want to declare whether he's pro-life or pro-choice. As a leader, he is going to have to declare that. He cannot just be a Minister of Finance if he wants to be a Prime Minister. It got so bad that another candidate, Scott
0: Aitchison, claimed that they're turning off voters. Check this out. And
3: here we are calling each other names what Canadian is going to trust this lot?
1: We've got to do better.
0: And in three days in Edmonton, they're all set to do it again. Scott Aitchison, Roman Baber, Jean-Claire, Lewis, Pierre Polly But this time they'll be joined by Patrick Brown. He skipped the first debate. So what does the open nastiness say about the race and the state of the party? And what should you watch for this week? The Scrum is back to answer that. Stephanie Levitz. From the Toronto Star is back, so is Marika Walsh from the Globe and Mail. And our special guest this round is the former Conservative Cabinet Minister and leadership candidate, Lisa Rait. Well, uh, okay, uh, Lisa, I, last week's debate, the first unofficial debate, uh, w- was pretty stunning. Um, I've never seen anything like it. What struck you about that debate and how it might impact the race to
8: come? So i didn't watch it live i caught it later on youtube because i thought it was going to be a nothing burger and like you evan i was floored because in past leadership debates there has been a modicum of i guess everybody got along for lack of a better word and this one i noticed even when people were coming onto the stage certain folks weren't actually shaking hands or greeting one another and i thought wow this is going to be this is going to be really interesting. Now, was this playing to the room that was there? I don't know. We'll see what happens in the two officially sanctioned mm. Lee debates, which could be different.
0: Steph, you were there. You watched it. Um, it was, I mean, especially the Poly Ever, but also Leslie Lewis. What struck you about that?
6: So a couple of things. I mean, ordinarily in leadership debates, and certainly in the last two races for the Conservative Party, it's very common to see all the candidates sort of in violent agreement with each other, because there's not that much daylight that separates them. Last night, or I'm sorry, the other night was just violent. Um, The extent to which that they they were punching at each other in front of the family, for lack of a better word. It was like watching mom, dad, aunt, uncle, grandma, and grandpa all taking swings at each other over Christmas dinner, and you're wondering, what the heck is going on? Why is everyone so mad, because this is supposed to be the, fe- the venue. I mean, if there isn't a, a better venue for conservatives, you know, over the years, they've come together, they've tried to talk about ideas, values, principles. This is the family that was there, and they were fighting in front of the family. And I found that Interesting because it speaks to all of the different cleavages within the family, as opposed to you know this idea that they are all in fact one family.
0: Well, and Marika, one of the allegations is that you don't even you're not even in the family. Pierre mm-hmm. Pauliava is saying, "Sure, this isn't your family at all." So this is a, what's your sense of how, are these just healthy political divisions and a new nastiness, or are these exposing more profound divisions?
7: I think it exposes and makes clear that there is a profound debate about what this party is going to be, Evan. And I think that we've talked about that in the last few months. Is this a party that's going to go to the centre, try to moderate its message? in order to appeal to a general electorate or is this going to be you know a conservative populist message party and we've been talking about that being the question for this race and it made clear in the debate last week that that is the question that that is what they are fighting over and that's why it is so heated because there are as you said people who do not believe that they can even be in the same tent let alone the same room
0: lisa you know how the strategies of these things uh uh, and this is strategies about getting memberships, June 3rd. So you got to sign up memberships. And then you got to think, how am I going to win this on the first ballot? And who's support on the second ballot? That's why I want to yeah. ask you, when Leslie Lewis, the, the social conservative standard bearer, turned on Pierre Polyevra in a way I, mm-hmm. I don't think he even expected and said, what's your position on social conservative issues like abortion as it's playing out in the U.S.? What did that tell you? About, is this a new kind of emboldened social conservative aspect of the blue tent?
8: Two things uh, that have come to my mind since watching it. Number one, I believe that why you saw such reactionary and very, not violent agreement, but violent disagreement and and very pugnacious in how people approached it is because that is what Conservatives want to see from their leaders. They want to see somebody going in and getting ready to go and beat up on the Liberals. So that's why they're all rising to that, that kind of way in which to approach a debate. But the other thing that I thought of this morning, Evan, quite frankly, was Is Leslie Lewis's team thinks that it comes down to her and Pierre on the final ballot and how she needs to exhibit that she is the stronger candidate for those who were, uh, who are voting on the basis of what happened in the truck convoy, what's happening in social, social conservatism? Are they thinking that they are the one to at the end?
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. That, that has
8: implications, Steph.
0: The tra- by the way, um, Lisa just mentioned the truck convoy. Jean Charest called it an illegal occupation. Uh, mm-hmm. He got booed, but it seemed to be widely people were fighting over who supported it more. What are the issues that, that are really resonating here for each candidate in your view?
6: Pierre Polyev, you know his his underlying message is freedom narrative that he's talking about, and you know it's it, he picks apart different places he means freedom. That clearly remains the same thing that continues to drive his, his campaign, this economic populism. One of Leslie Lewis's strongest nights of the uh, strongest lines of the night was when she came after him for that, and said you can't just be the minister of finance, which is to say broaden your discussion. We need to hear you on other things, and I think that's a, a well put point. And the other thing to watch, you know, that was interesting, was the extent. To which Pierre Polyev can handle being challenged, because he is very much a one-message candidate at the moment, as is Roman Baber. I mean, this narrative of freedom, it just so happens that the U.S. Supreme Court draft decision on abortion has thrown the question of abortion into this race, but really the main theme running through relates to the trucker convoy, vaccine mandates, questions of freedom, government interference. These are the big thematics in this race, and that's very new for this particular um, Format. Well, in the first
0: debate, what wasn't mentioned was the other thing: thirty-nine thousand Canadians who died of COVID, not mentioned. Nothing on healthcare workers, long-term care workers. Not much on Indigenous issues or even much deep economic policy. But now we're going to see Patrick Brown jump in, Marika, and and Jean Chretien seems to be fighting for his life. So, what are you watching from those two?
7: Well, one of them is going to have to come out on top because they're both fighting for that same. Side of the debate around what the future of the party is, yes. Evan. And I think what's going to be interesting is seeing more who is attacking who, because that shows us their strategy, their path to victory. We saw that Pierre Polyev really focused on Sharay, and he did not spend much time talking about Acheson Baber or Leslin Lewis. And I think mm-hmm. that Patrick Brown is going to change that dynamic a bit because there are going to be more players on the stage, and it's going to show you even more clearly how they see their path to victory and where they see it going.
0: If the first uh, official debate is anything like the first unofficial debate, you do not want to miss it. Uh, okay, i got to leave it there. Uh, Lisa Raitt, Steph Levitz, and uh, Marika Walsh, thanks for joining us. Lisa uh, and, and Steph, as I say, happy Mother's Day. I hope you enjoy the rest of your Sunday. That is Question Period for this week. I will be hosting special coverage of the conservative debate on Wednesday. It's taking place in Edmonton. That will be on CTV News Channel. I'll see you back on Power Play tomorrow night at 5 p.m., But to all of you, happy Mother's Day. To my mom, mom, I love you. And I'm sure all the panelists here love their moms. Hug your loved ones if you can. I know my wife sure wishes she could hug hers now. We'll be back here in seven short days.